That's a good song, is it not? Yeah, I love that song. Uh, well, anyways, I just have another quick announcement. Uh, we all know the Pinson family, but VJ Pinson is actually going to be baptized this Wednesday. Yes. Uh, it's going to be this Wednesday at 4.30, um, and it's going to be in time just, uh, just for uh, the family group midweeks. And so if you guys want to stop by before you guys meet together, it's going to be at uh, one of the Pinson's residence at, uh, in La Quinta. So if you guys want any more info, we'll put it on the group, uh, on your different group meetings, and we'll, we'll, we'll put it around. Amen? amen? Well, amen. Well, it's good to be uh, together this afternoon. We are still continuing uh, with our uh, series here in Romans, and it feels like we've been in the book of Romans for quite some time, right? Uh, but luckily, we are in Romans 13, which marks that we are almost there. But it has been such a wonderful book. Uh, to, to go through together. And it's really, as we continue on the book of Romans, so you guys can turn there, we're going to be in Romans 13. Uh, but we're uncovering really who Paul is, right? And how devoted he is to Christ, uh, and really how he calls the church to do the same. Uh, in chapters 9 to 11, uh, we uh, talked about that a few weeks prior, and how it's, uh, we talked about how they fit, or how the church really fits into God's greater plan, and that's us. Uh, and the need for unity in love through wisdom and peace. Last week, Scott uh, preached uh, about spiritual gifts on Romans 12 and how to use them to serve others and to genuinely love each other. Amen. So now we're here in Romans 13. And when I was writing this lesson, it seemed to me that as I'm reading through this chapter, it, it, it takes a little tangent. Uh, it takes a little detour or, or a little turn in where Paul is is, you know, talking to the church in Romans, uh, but Paul is really speaking into what the church is going through. And in Romans 13, verse 1 to 7, let's all turn, to, uh, turn there together. We're going to read that. But it says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servant, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is why you pay taxes. We love taxes. For the authorities are God's servant who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. And if you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue then revenue, if respect, then respect, if honor, then honor. Wow. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but to me, this is a politically loaded scripture. Yet recognizing that Paul really is writing in a very politically loaded time. And so what I present to you with this lesson, I present to you an observation of how our present somehow and somewhat resembles that of what we're reading here in the past. And we live in a very politically loaded time. 
And today it seems like who you are as a person is also connected with who you vote for, which issue you side with, which ideologies you may hold. And it oftentimes becomes this elephant in the room because it's hard to avoid because as headline after headline comes out, people around the world are asked to quickly respond how and what to make of it all. And reading this, Paul is showing the Christians in Rome how to respond to the pressure of living under Roman rule. And it's hard to really not think about or to not not think about our current dilemma, right? You know, and and how are we going to tackle this together and connect with this chapter today? Well, today I want to discuss two things, and this is our objectives for Romans 13 is one, how this passage has been used badly. And I titled this The Painted Picture. And I think the reason why we, we need to talk about this is because we want, want to know what we're going to work with today. Right. And historically, instances where the interpretation of the scripture has been taken out of context and how it impacted not only people, but society as a whole. And then with that, we're going to get to see the larger context to see what Paul is then saying, which is the bigger picture. And I titled that the bigger picture because we can connect with Paul's heart and then we can focus in on the bigger picture, which prayerfully can give us some tools to handle the world that we live in today. Amen. Amen. And so with those points, the painted picture, the bigger picture, I think it's only fitting that our title is what am I looking at? (laughs) Right. What am I looking at when I'm reading Romans 13? Let's go ahead and pray and then let's uh, let's start off. Uh, Heavenly Father, God, Lord, thank you so much for giving us breath. Thank you for giving us life. Thank you for giving us a vision, a purpose, a calling here on this earth. Lord, we come to you as broken people, as imperfect people, as people in need of you, in need of each other. Lord, but with you, through your love, through your grace, Lord, we are restored. Thank you so much, God, for being our God, for being our Father, for giving us our Messiah, Lord, that we can hope for a better life here on this earth, regardless of whatever may be happening. Thank you for giving us your love. And I pray for everything in mighty son's name. Amen. 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 So I want to start off with a story. You know, growing up, I always acknowledged the rules, but I didn't really respond well to authority. I was more so like a kid rebel. And I like to march to the beat of my own drum. I was very prideful and I never really saw that until I got married. (laughs) Right. And Alicia is really just the complete opposite. You give her clear instructions You give her a goal, she will do it, and it's final. You can't persuade her otherwise. And so we've been working out at this gym, and our coach, she runs like a really tight ship when it comes to cleanliness. And everyone needs to clean up their own spot, got to put it away in a specific way. Uh, And if not, she will expose you on Instagram. (laughs) She She will go on the stories and say, Man, look at this. They'll take pictures and stuff. And everyone who goes to that gym will just kind of start a witch hunt to figure out who it was. Right. So one day we finished this workout and we're cleaning up and I'm like completely out of it. I'm on the floor. I'm gasping for air. I don't even know which way is left and right. Right. And then so as I'm out of it, then I'm, I'm spraying 
um, the, the equipment. And so one, one of the things that my coaches hate is if you spray the equipment directly rather than spraying a rag and wiping it. That's how she is. She's very, she's almost OCD, if I would say so myself. Right? So I'm over here. I'm spraying the equipment. I'm not using the rag. And then Alicia, like some sort of spidey sense, right, watches me and starts watching me like a hawk. And then she says out loud, you know, you're not supposed to, you know, you're not supposed to do that. Right. You know, you're supposed to use the rag. And I'm like, no, it's okay, It's okay. Like any type of husband. It's okay, It's fine. uh, Whatever. Right. And then she looks dead at the coach waiting for what she always loves to hear, which is our coach said, you know, she's right. I'm like, oh, man. And so my wife told on me, man, I got I got snitched, you know, and so uh, and that's just my dynamic with my wife. But she is the better person, obviously, when it comes to following rules. But Alicia respects authority. Right. And authority is a powerful tool and it holds a lot of responsibility. And if you guys know about anything about me, my favorite superhero is Spider-Man. Anyone any Spider-Man fans out there? Okay, there you go. Me and five other people. All right. And so one of the greatest quotes in that whole entire series is with great power comes great responsibility. Everyone know that quote? You don't even have to know or watch Spider-Man to, to kind of hear that quote. You probably heard it. Right. But they were on to something that there's this other side of the coin that people can can handle authority incorrectly. Because with great power comes great responsibility. And Romans 13 has been one of those passages that I I believe have been tragically misused. And I've been into history lately, watching timepiece movies and uncovering things of old. So it was quite interesting hearing some of the historical connections that this passage has had throughout time. And even in our current political climate, how this passage has been used is, is really quite tame compared to how it was in the past. You know, one of, so our first point is the painted picture. So I'll, I'll talk about some examples that I've seen. You know, a, a more current use is recently a pastor, a Christian pastor with national recognition, was on stage, uh, and he says that because of the book of Romans, the president has, quote-unquote, every right to exercise fire and fury. God has endowed rulers full power to use whatever means necessary, the authority to do whatever, assassination, capital punishment, even evil to quell the evil doers, end quote. Right. And so he's saying this on stage and, the, and one of the reporters was like, whoa, wait, wait, hold on. But what about Romans 12 in the chapter before where it says, do not repay evil for evil? And so then the pastor then res- responds, well, that doesn't apply, right? And so this may come across as shocking to us who know that really Christ resembles peace, yet this comment is mild and compared to other ways used in the past. Does everyone know who this is? This is Manny Pacquiao, Filipino. I got I I got a rep Manny Pacquiao, right? He's one of the most famous Filipinos has probably been in history. He's a acclaimed boxer. And then he just took a random right turn and decided to run for Senate. So he's a senator now. Right. And he quotes. He quotes. Well, I agree it's wrong to kill. OK. Individually, we're forbidden from killing. 
right? And he's, he's obviously spiritual. He prays every, every match before he fights. But then he continues that quote with, but you can read in the Bible, the authority, meaning the government, is given the power to impose the death penalty. He told reporters, such authority, according to Pacquiao, is established by God and instituted by God. Crazy. We backtrack. In in the past, Romans 13 was heavily referenced when sanctioning the apartheid and backing the apartheid government in Africa. It was also marshaled by church leaders in Rwanda to uncritically support the genocide in that country. And also it was used by the German state church or the German Christian movement to legitimize and partner with the government under Hitler in the wake of World War II. So two opposing forces when we think about that, right? And so these are historical events connected to our history as Christians. And so what do we make of this? What do we make of all these ways that Romans 13 have been used and ways that government have impacted the lives of people and using scriptures when we don't dive deeper in this bigger context. And I think about these points in history and I can't really beg or I can't beg to question how and where really Jesus fits into all these decisions. Right. And other Christians were starting to see that, too. And in 1934, uh, there was this thing called the Barman Declaration in response to the German Christian movement that was that was uh, developing at the time. And they criticized that using six theses, which were authored by p- pivotal theologians called Bart Bonhoeffer, um, which actively opposed uh, the ways that the church and the government was having this relationship during World War II. And, one of, and the sixth thesis is this, is that one, the source of revelation is only the word of God, Jesus Christ. Any other possible sources will not be accepted. And I think about John 1, verse 1 to 5, right? That the word became flesh and the word is Jesus. And so that's what they're referencing. And even as each thesis goes by, I kind of put some scriptures over there that reminds me of some of these theses. So, right, second, Jesus Christ is only Lord of all aspects of all personal life. There shall be no other authority. The message and order of the church should not be influenced by the current political climate. The church should not be ruled by a leader, or in this case, a furrer. There's no hierarchy within the church. I think about Colossians 1.8, right? Jesus is the head and we are the body, right? And Jesus is obviously our, our authority, right? And the state should not fulfill the task of the church and vice versa and six. Therefore, this declaration rejects, one, the subordination of the church to the state, and two, the subordination of the word and the spirit to the church. And so these theses which responded to the ways their government was really twisting the Bible were beautifully written, which I want us to catch here in the first and the last thesis. So the last thesis is talking about that the church should not be the servant to the state, but more so the word must not be subordinate to the church. And so many times have God called us to protect our doctrine to watch it closely, to align our lives with it. And really, if God intends his words to literally transform our lives, whose lives have been transformed by the Bible? Raise your hand. Yes, right? We've been transformed through the word, so that really holds a lot of authority in our lives. Amen? 
And furthering that, it is fundamental truth, even in John 1, as I mentioned, stated as the first thesis, is that that word that transforms your life is Christ. So that the word is Jesus. And according to the authors of these theses, they declared that it is in fact then Jesus who has the last word over this earth. And unfortunately, these authors were then executed for these declarations, and there were Christians who were persecuted because of their opposition to the, to the authority that was grounded in their interpretation of Romans 13. And so as we read on in Romans 1, 13, verse 1, again, we read, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. And so we observe in the scripture that authorities rule over us but also hold to the truth that we believe that the word of God also has authority. Amen. And this key takeaway is what we can learn from our past. And I believe Paul is stating it here is that our allegiance is not to worldly authority. But Paul says here, though, to subject themselves or subject yourself, which also is synonymous to submitting and to obey So we need to be obedient to how God has formed things. We need to be exemplary citizens. But our allegiance, our loyalty, our worship is to Jesus. And so there's a larger context at play. But when we read and forget the heart of Jesus, we can make a ton of mistakes theologically and in our lives. And then in turn, the lives we impact But church, when we hone in on Jesus, it is a foolproof way. Amen. And point number two, the bigger picture. So let's talk about the larger context. What is Paul saying? Well, we know that Romans is a letter to a small community hidden within a hostile city. So it really wouldn't be fitting for Paul to write to a group of people without acknowledging some of the different factors that affect their daily living. So being a Christian in Rome was very difficult. So fast forward, Paul was even executed by that same governing authority. And this picture right here, uh, and, and this is a huge part of Roman history, which was the Great Roman Fire, right? In 64 AD, a fire started in merchant shops, lasted nine days, And burned about two-thirds of Rome. So Emperor Nero in the painting blamed this devastation on the Christians. They were like, Emperor, what what, what happened to the whole city? Why is it on fire? Emperor Nero said, well, it's because of the Christians. Right? And so this blaming of the Christians initiated then early mass acts of persecution against the Christian community. But then we see that tensions would die down. And then Christians would then be ignored again until other occurrences would start then the cycle of persecution. And so why do I share this? Because this really then gives context to Paul's letter that as persecution was more sporadic or more spotty rather than how I thought about it, reading Romans, that it was more widespread and consistent, is that we can see that really the church in Rome was abil- had the ability to worship. And they kind of flew under the radar in some sense. And so learning this, this gave me a brand new clarity to passages that Paul would write throughout the entire book. Like Romans 5, where Paul says, we boast 
in the glory of God, but we glory in our suffering. In Romans 8, he says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And so in one chapter, Paul is talking about boasting in the glory of God. And in another chapter, Romans 8, he's saying, well, what our response? God is for us. Who can be against us? So he's writing to this church with a sense of confidence and this ability to grow, yet warning the church to be aware of their surroundings. And in Romans 8, one of my favorite scriptures is we are more than conquerors, right? And when I read this passage, doesn't it just give you like, a bunch of power. Does it give you like adrenaline? Like, oh yeah, like we are more than conquerors, right? I love this passage, right? But when I read, when I read it in the context, what I'm seeing is that really Paul is saying that conquerors aren't to be celebrated. And it's not saying that Christians in Rome are powerful like conquerors, but he's saying although living in the shadows of their conquering empire, Paul writes that they are more than their conquerors through Christ. Do you catch that? He's not saying that you are a conqueror. He's saying that you are more than the conquerors that are above you through Christ. So meaning Paul is saying that the church is proof that the Christians in Rome are proof that there is a new way of living through Christ. That these conquerors aren't as powerful as they think they are, but you are more powerful than they are. So Paul tells the church in Rome to subscribe to what Jesus supports. Grace, peace, unity, as opposed to what Rome's motto was back in the day, which was peace through strength or peace through threat. And in Romans 13, uh, verse 2 to 4, Let's read there. It says, consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves for rulers hold no terror for those who do right. But for those who do wrong, do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. And so they have this ability to be different than their city. But therefore, even amid persecution, Paul is advising the church to not bring any more attention to themselves. He calls to us to do this or when he, his call to do this really was not an endorsement to authority. He was not saying to not bring any more attention to ourselves, not as an endorsement of the authority, but an endorsement of Jesus who supersedes Rome. So if not followed, the passage then says, well, then consequently, judgment comes. But really, Paul is is saying that this is not an endorsement of that judgment, but a warning and caution to not throw your life into persecution needlessly. So he's saying, be wise, because judgment will come. So as Paul mentions the scale of, okay, do right versus doing wrong, the reality of Christians at that time were still subject to unjust persecution. Fear of walking out the door, not knowing what's going to happen. Fear of who's going to get caught and who is going to get punished for aligning with Christ. But Paul writes to the church, and in today's time, is quite fitting. That there's this essence of Paul telling the church, well, you live in an unjust world. You are part of an unjust system. 
But the key takeaway that Paul and I really want to focus on is that this passage is talking about bringing love and life, but choosing your battles wisely. Because unlike the empire, unlike Rome, that we do not fight violence with violence. We don't fight evil with evil. We don't pit one side against another. In Romans 13, verse 5, it says, Therefore it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also what? As a matter of conscience. And so their job is to be a living, breathing, counter-narrative within their communities, which challenge everything that the, that the empire stands for. And that narrative is rooted in peace found in Christ. And what is that narrative? I think about, or I think about scriptures like John 14, 27. What is that narrative that Jesus is talking about? He's saying, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Jesus is talking about peace, right? And so when I ask you, church, what is your purpose? What is your purpose? Someone, someone just say, what is our purpose as Christians? What is it? Make disciples. Say, love Jesus. Yeah? Love others. Yeah. You know, our purpose is to live a life different than the world. If you said make disciples, that's our commission, right? That's our calling in life is to make disciples. But our purpose is to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves, right? The greatest commandment, Matthew 22, says all the law and the prophets hang on these two things. And so Paul is, isn't against the Roman Empire or anyone because in Romans 13, 6, he calls Christians to abide to the policies. He calls them to pay taxes, right? So he's not against the Roman Empire, but what he is, he is for Jesus, which is for people. But only if the love of Christ is being hindered is when Paul brings about conflict if it's against human flourishing. In Romans 12, 9, we read back in that last chapter, and Scott mentioned this, what it says here, Paul states that love is sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. So, really, as Paul continues to write to the Roman church, this letter becomes a blueprint on really how to do church. But Romans 13, this chapter, teaches us and teaches the church peaceful living in a fallen world. But it's important that we are connected to our purpose to love God and to love others. Amen? So what's our purpose? Love God and love others. Right? Well, we need to be connected to this. And when we become connected to our purpose, we do some incredible things as a church. Right? And I think about this. When we're connected with our goal, our purpose of loving God loving others, I think about during the time of, you know, racial injustices happening, right? The church developed a committee to further discover how our differences aren't meant to be a dividing line, but a way to unite and move forward together. Because it's not our culture that leads us, but it's Christ. Amen. And then even that in our L.A. church, there were pictures, videos of disciples cleaning the streets and holding service projects to beautify downtown areas in the aftermath of the protests, right? Because 
regardless of the tension, as a church, we understand that we represent God's desire to be for the community. Not about specific members, not about specific groups. Right? But we are for God. And being for Jesus allows us as a church to continually pray, to send resources and aid to brothers and sisters in Ukraine, caring for refugees, and even uniting and communicating with our brothers and sisters residing in Russia. And so as two countries conflict, us as a church, we're banding together as brothers and sisters because we love God and we love others. And Mikhail even mentioned this. Our special missions, man, we love to do special missions. And what's that for? Is it to just give money to a church? No, it's to bring God's glory in parts of the world that don't welcome it. And we further this gospel of love and peace because the world needs to see the lives of disciples. That's why we do special missions. That's why we give. And lastly, being for Jesus Being for Christ allows us to emotionally grieve and have our hearts broken for the lost lives in the Texas school shooting and the shooting in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We prayed as a men's as a men's group this past Wednesday. And this is why we can call for truth and justice to prevail, because our allegiance and hope is not in the governing authorities but is in someone more powerful, God. And our hearts aren't focused on which law gets passed, which policies changed. When we see something like that, our hearts as Christians just focus on the humankind, the hurting families, the grieving people all over the country. I think about fear of parents dropping their kids off at school. And working with teens during that time, I was like, man, it's a scary thought to be someone going to school. Because God's heart or God's heart breaks when he sees the broken world. And so our hope for this world isn't in politics or policies, but our hopes is in Jesus who has already won. Therefore, he goes before us. Amen. So let's finish off with, okay, well, then what, what does that mean for us? What, what do we then need to take away from it? And I love the way that Paul transitions out of this argument, and I think he does it so beautifully. And in Romans 3, verse 9 to 10, let's read that. It says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law, the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And whatever other commands there may be are summed up in one command, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So Paul is saying here that one, that the church needs to defer to those in power whenever they can and see the opportunity for good in Rome. They need to hope for the government. Right. But also, too, it tells that people need to abide by the law and even pay taxes. But then we catch here. It says that let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Right. So there are laws that we must abide by and we need to meet them. But the most important law is this, that love is that fulfillment of the law. 
And we see kind of like this double entendres, if you kind of catch that, right? Because you have one side where Paul's saying, well, you got to pay taxes. You can't let any debt accrue. You got to do that Dave Ramsey class, right? You got you to let no debt accrue. You got to pay taxes, right? Except for the debt to love another. So he says, except. But then he also says, well, let everyone be subjected to governing authority. But then he says, well, love does not harm a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law, not your obedience. It's the love that is fulfilling the law. And so we see this contradiction that one in one sense that the law is Torah or the law is biblical law. But we also see that Paul is referring to the law as governing authorities, laws of the land. And I think I'm catching this that Paul knows that when we try our best to live at peace and follow the laws of the land, there will come a time when that law will contradict our commitment to love one another. And when that happens, we need to know that love needs to supersede the legal. Whatever the circumstance may be, however hard and overwhelmingly difficult it could be. Because Paul longs for peace in the earthly sense, but not at the expense of our love for God and love for one another. Because we need to trust that God has everything under control. Amen. And there's two different perspectives when reading Romans 13. And when I read it, I kind of think about, okay, I kind of read in the perspective of the empire that we that is if you are Christians in Roman rule, you need to submit. Right. But we I also read in this perspective as I'm writing this lesson that these were people shadowed by the empire. So when we level our perspective, reading as the oppressed, Paul shows us to recognize the power, but we need to be wise around it because in Romans verse four, because they do not bear the sword for no reason. So punishment is quick. But Paul is saying to choose your battles wisely. He's telling the church, do not be quick to expose your vulnerable neighbors needlessly. And that power should be feared as long as we don't allow fear to be the last word. And so we live with earthly authorities. We breathe and feel as we coexist with the different actions and decisions of the authorities above us. But we always need to subject them and us to Jesus, the Messiah. Because Paul ends it off here that everything is obedient to the law of love. How we live our lives and our perspective of life itself. How we run our families, how we interact with the people in our community how we raise the next generation to face the world. Laws of the land are written to change the way of living. But the law of love, which is rooted in Jesus, changes the way of life itself. Amen. So in, in conclusion, really, the role, our role isn't to debate. Our role isn't to argue. It's not to agree or disagree on headlines. It's not to feel isolated or feel indifferent to one another. But our goal, our role is to desire for peace in a society today that isn't peaceful. And we hope that all law is subject to Christ's law, which is love. So when we hear devastating news, when we see leaders taking the mantle that can either make us feel like they're with us or against us, when we see policies affect the people in our community, either here in this church or in the greater community, when we ask ourselves, what am I looking at? What am I seeing? 
I hope that we can declare this. In Hebrews 12, verse 2 to 3, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, who endured opposition from sinful men, from an imperfect government, from systemic flaws, from an unjust ruling and authority, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. So for communion, let's focus on this scripture and let's bow our heads as we partake in this time together. Heavenly Father, God, Lord, thank you for being you. Lord, thank you for letting us be us. God, although we are imperfect and we are deserving of wrath, of punishment, of consequences for our sin, the ways that we've turned against you and turned against your will, Lord, that you still have this love that you lavish on us through Jesus who endured the cross, who was unjustly murdered, who bore this punishment for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, thank you, God, that although we are living in a society, Lord, that we can see and just question what is your plan? What are you doing? God, that you still allow us to focus on a Jesus, on a Messiah, on Christ that have walked before us, that have paved our steps. Lord, that as long as we are image bearers of Christ in this broken world, Lord, you and your love will shine endlessly. Help us to be men and women, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters that represent your Son, Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord of our life. God, we pray this prayer. Help us to connect with you as we take communion and remind ourselves of this sacrifice. Thank you for Jesus. And in his amazing and glorifying name, we pray. Amen.